This is Duke University. On behalf of Case and the Executive Fellows, it's my honor and privilege of introducing Jacqueline Novogratz. She's the CEO and founder of Acumen Fund. She has an MBA from Stanford. More importantly, she has a BA from the University of Virginia, double major in uh, foreign affairs and uh, in economics. Wahoo wah, sorry. Full disclosure, UVA alum up here. Um, she founded and incorporated the Acumen Fund on April 1st, 2001, with seed capital from the Rockefeller Foundation, Cisco Systems, and some uh, private philanthropists. The goal of the Acumen Fund is to find entrepreneurial approaches to solve the problems of global poverty. As I was able to find a great quote, I think that summed it up best. We seek to prove that small amounts of philanthropic capital combined with large doses of business acumen can build thriving enterprises that serve vast numbers of the poor. Our investments focus on delivering affordable, critical goods and services like health, water, housing, and energy through innovative, market-oriented approaches. Prior to the Acumen Fund, Jacqueline founded and directed the Philanthropy Workshop and the Next Generation Leadership Program at the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, she began her career in international banking with Chase Manhattan Bank and is proof that you can move on to better, more wonderful things. <laughs> uh, Jacqueline is currently on the advisory board for the Stanford Graduate School of Business, Innovations Journal, uh, and she's also a fellow at the Aspen Institute and Synergos Institute. She's a frequent speaker at such conferences uh, as the World Economic Forum, Clinton Global Initiative Fund, and TED. Somehow in the midst of all of this busyness, she has also written a book called The Blue Sweater, and it was just published. And so afterwards, if you want to talk to her about that as well. So often in business school, we, we, we learn about these great concepts, and thankfully, double, triple, bottom line, and wonderful other buzzwords are getting into our vernacular. But today, we actually get a chance to, to listen to a real leader of consequence, someone who actually is a visionary, who is shaping the world for the better. So please join me in a hearty fecal welcome to the 2009 Case Leadership Award uh, recipient in social entrepreneurship, Jacqueline Novogratz. Thank you very much. That was great. Thanks so much, Vishal. And it's really, really wonderful to be here at the Business School. It's my first time ever at Fuqua and at Duke. And it's beautiful here. And Really excited to see Greg and to be accepting this award later today because um, he has been one of the real heroes and mentors in the field for all of us and certainly for me. And so just feel really honored to be here um, with all of you. I thought I would start with a story. Um, it looks really self-promotional. Do I have to click this towards, the, oh there, of the blue sweater. Um, because I'm constantly asked in many ways, you know, why, the, why would you write a book about poverty and this journey um, toward understanding how to solve problems of poverty and name it the blue sweater. And it's a story that started when I was 10 years old and I had been given a blue sweater from my, one of my favorite uncles. Uh, and he, it had zebras running in the front and mountains right across the chest, Kilimanjaro, and it was kind of the beginning of dreaming for me. And, I wore it all the time, including into the freshman year of high school, when my adolescent curlers were filling this sweater out um, quite differently. And I really do believe there's a humiliating moment in every 14-year-old girl's life, or at least an adolescent girl's wife, life. 
Um, and mine was this day when my high school nemesis screamed across the hall that the boys didn't need to go to the mountains to ski. They could use my sweater. And um, so I ran home um, and told my mother how mortified I was. And we ceremoniously threw the sweater into the Goodwill. And I never thought about it again until 10 years later and about 5,000 miles. As Vishal said, I had left Wall Street and I was starting the country's first microfinance bank with the five Rwandan women in 1986. And uh, sure enough, 10 feet in front of me as I was jogging was this little 10-year-old boy wearing my sweater. And I ran up to the child and I grabbed him by the neck and I turned the collar and there was my name written on the collar of his sweater. And so for me then and certainly now, I hold that as a metaphor for how interconnected we are as a world, and that our action and our inaction can touch people we might never know or meet every single day. And um, the, the story even then began my journey in international development and trying to use market mechanisms to solve problems of poverty through microfinance. And I learned three very important lessons even including with the, the, the sweater, because that sweater somehow made its way from the Goodwill into a secondhand clothing market in Nairobi, most likely. And then it moved along into Rwanda. And I was, at that point, feeling desolate that the local tailoring business was being wiped out. And yet today, when you look at the coast of Kenya and you see secondhand clothing markets, um, it's, it's one of the best ways for individuals to move into the middle class. And so, how all of these different sectors work together has become a real obsession and lifelong vocation for me. The three lessons I learned, though, in those years, starting with um, the work I was doing in Rwanda, um, is that dignity is more important to the human spirit than wealth, more than anything else. And I, while I started a bakery, a microfinance organization, I sim simultaneously started a bakery with 20 women. And watch them move from 50 cent, earning 50 cents a day to about $2 a day, um, but watch them transform as they were being given more opportunity to be part of making decisions and choices into women who could walk with their he heads held high in the street. And really think we so underestimate the qualitative values of what it means to be a human being when we define poverty only in terms of dollars earned per day. Um, also learn quite clearly that traditional aid and development do not solve uh, problems of poverty. And um, have seen over and over how we too often create systems of dependence, uh, systems that reinforce invisibility, and this idea that people at the end of the day are throwaway, ironically, even though it's started with the best of intentions. And at the same time, that the marketplace alone does not. And I think over the last 10 years, we've almost been dogmatic in a polemical way of saying, look at the power of the markets. We don't really need to do anything else. We've seen 100 million people move out of poverty in China and India. Um, and yet, last year with the food crisis, we saw almost 100 million people go back into poverty. And the World Bank estimates that another 50 million will go back this year. Um, and 2010 is likely to be worse than 2009. And so if we're really looking at a world of a divergent wealthy and um, low-income populations, we need to do better than rely on one side or the other and find this third way that is neither purely market-driven market nor purely philanthropic. Um, and that's really where we decided in 2001 to start 
this new, this new kind of entity, Acumen Fund, that would use a concept that we call patient capital, um, that would work between the market and philanthropy by raising philanthropic money, but then only investing equity in loans in both for-profit and non-profit companies that were focused specifically on bringing basic goods and services to low-income people in a way that provided them choice, quality, and affordability. And we would, um, un we learned to understand that patient capital, while, which was about um, money that you would invest and leave for a very long time in organizations, expecting below market returns, needed to be accompanied by a lot of management assistance. And one thing we've built over time is the Acumen Fund Fellows Program, where we find extraordinary individuals to actually work in some of the companies that we support and provide and, and ways of strengthening management. And then we measure everything that we do in both social impact and financial impact terms. And in fact, one of the innovations that the team has been working on, led by Brian Trelstead, is something called Pulse. And it's a metrics database, essentially, that we now have 50 foundations and social investors beta testing that measures um, in a very rudimentary way, because we're so early as a field in doing this, but looking at social impact, at least from an output perspective, and then, and then balancing that with financial impact. And then, and I think in some ways, what appeals to our investors, who don't get any money back from us, they get change, is um, a, real, a real focus and a real commitment to sharing not only the lessons and the success stories, but just as important, maybe more important, the failures and what we've learned from them. Um, today we focus on these five areas. We started off just in health, but it's really all of the basics. We're not really focused on any kind of business that will create jobs, but learning how to use the markets as a way of doing a better job at getting basic services so that people have the dignity of choice. And we have currently about $40 million that we've invested in Pakistan, India, um, and East Africa across those different sectors. We actually have offices in each of these countries that are run by locals and then surrounded by advisors. Uh, and we really believe in raising local money as well from the uh, communities in which we work. I want to talk about two investments in more detail and then give you a, a sampling of the different kinds of investments we do so that you have a better understanding of what Acumen Fund is and then we can really have uh, more of a Q&A. The first is called Water Health International. Um, it was an investment that we made in 2004. When you look at safe water, and I know some of you are interested in this area, it is one of the most difficult areas on the planet to work in, in part because it is such an enormous issue. One out of five human beings have no access to safe water, um, certainly drinking water. Two, it's an in incredibly distorted marketplace. The United Nations spends about $13 billion a year trying to solve the problem. And over the last 20 years, we have not moved the, the needle, in large part because population continues to grow, but also because of inefficiencies. Three, it's one of the most corrupt markets. One of the things I did not know when I started Acumen Fund, focusing on the basic goods and services, is that when you're talking about these kinds of services like health, like housing, like water, you are also working in highly corrupt industries. And so how do you use the marketplace as a way of listening? And we say that the market is the best listening device that we have. Listening to low-income people, but also recognizing what needs to be done to help facilitate people's access to that water. So we made a $600,000 investment in a new company, Water Health International, that had 
proven the model in the Philippines, but wanted to see what it would mean to move into rural India. Um, much to the chagrin of many of the Indian officials we met whose political platform was water is a human right and should be given away free. And no matter how many times we pointed out that 220 million Indians had no access to safe water, and that was a rather moot platform, we were really got a lot of pushback. Um, the, first, the first plant that um, Water Health did is this big blue plant. Now inside is a UV hydration, uh, filtration uh, system that costs about $50,000 and is sold at the local village level, either to an entrepreneur or to the panjayat, the, the kind of village community leaders. Um, they need to borrow, typically, to buy these units. And there was no banks that were willing to lend into the rural areas. And so first thing we noticed was that the plant didn't really fit the local context. And also, it was really expensive and cumbersome to buy and to construct. And so a fellow, Ankur Shah, worked with Acumen Fund and then with WHI um, as one of our fellows for about four months. He had an architecture degree, worked at McKinsey, and did a redesign of the plant so that it would make it much easier to scale. And then on the credit side, we went to ICICI Bank, the second largest commercial bank in India. And we said, you know, we need to find a way to lend. And Nachiket Moore, who was the COO at the time, said, I want to find a way to teach my bankers how to lend. And so we negotiated a 30% first loss guarantee, where we could again use this idea of patient capital, philanthropic capital, and put it up against the, the leveraging more traditional forms of capital and getting them into these markets. Um, we did that for, with a million dollar line of credit. Well, we put up about $330,000. $300, Within 18 months, it was very clear that we had been way too conservative on our coverage ratios. And in fact, the, each individual village was moving so quickly towards operational sustainability and repaying their loans that we were, enabled, we were able to negotiate a second tranche, which was an $8 million line of credit um, that we only had to put up um, 15% um, or about $1.25 million um, to release this new kind of capital. So it's again this idea that we can take more risk to start accelerating the development of rural markets that had never really existed before and bringing in more traditional players with us. So today, um, Water Health has, has um, plants in about 220 villages and over 350,000 paying customers. So now you've, we you've seen a company that is starting to turn on its head conventional wisdom about the poor and their willingness to pay, their willingness to understand what the value of safe water is. And we have a real business model. But what we've learned from the work is that so often, uh, in many cases, people will come and buy water from the, um, from the plants in these sanitized plastic containers. And then they'll bring it home and dump it into their contaminated clay pots because they prefer the cooling, the cooling characteristics of the clay. And so um, if Acumen Fund were only worried about the financial investing side, we wouldn't really care that much about the other. But we want to figure out how we get public services using private innovation to the poor um, in ways that change their lives. And so the Gates Foundation supported us to create a joint venture with the design company IDEO to literally sit on the ground and, and, and observe the behavior of the low-income um, rural customers as to how they use the water in the household, what their preferences are, so that we can help design a better supply chain 
or maybe, maybe even a better um, system of pots where they would bring the clay pot to have them cleaned before. We don't know what the solution will be. But it's this idea of constant iteration and innovation on, an, on, on a business model that hopefully will show the world at least one way that might work um, at scale and in a way that's sustainable. The second has to do with um, Africa. And I was recently interviewed with a, a, a woman who's written a book to say, you know, no more aid to Africa. And I was asked if I agreed with that. And um, the example that really came to mind for me as to why I don't agree with that is that, again, we're in this moment for incredible innovation opportunities in the world. And if you think about malaria, which is a disease that um, we see three to 500 million cases of a year, 92% of, of which are in Africa, over a million and a half deaths a year, 75% to women and children, and, and the estimation that, the, that Africa loses $13 billion a year in productivity because every time somebody gets the disease, they don't work for 10 days. It's a really big deal from the continent's perspective, but also from the world's perspective. And so there's got to be a way that private markets can work with global aid to um, make the delivery of bed nets as one innovation much more effective. And so when we started looking at this opportunities, it was about the same time that Sumitomo, which is a chemical company in Japan, had made the decision that they wanted to take some of their manufacturing capacity because at that point, 100% of the, the long-lasting malaria bed nets, those nets you put over your beds to protect yourself from malaria, were uh, produced in China and Vietnam. Whereas, as I said before, 92% of the cases of malaria were in Africa. So we helped identify a, who we thought would be the, the greatest entrepreneur, and he turned out to be indeed even greater than we thought he would be, Anushah in Arusha, Tanzania. Um, it was a 25-year-old company. They'd been both doing textile production, traditional polyester-based nets production, as well as plastics production. And these new nets required a fusing of um, an organic pesticide with a, a, a polyethylene or a plastic-based type of textile. So it was high risk. No banks would lend. The UN didn't know how to lend. They weren't allowed to lend. So Acumen Fund made the loan. That was in 2003. And I went, remember looking in my journal where I said that our goal was 105,000 nets per year and 100 jobs created. And um, today, that company uh, actually employs 7,000 women and men, mostly women. And they um, have a throughput rate. They produce 20 million nets a year, um, which provides coverage for about 40 million people. And to walk into A to Z today, where they now have a joint venture at an enormous level with Sumitomo, and see 70,000 square foot of beautifully lit factory with 7,000 people working um, and achieving the same kind of throughput rates inside the factory as you see in East Asia, you suddenly change your, your, your imagination around what is possible in Africa. If we could be more thoughtful and constructive about the way that we take some of these international aid flows and really build entrepreneurial um, potential and opportunity, because one company in Arusha is now spawning a, a microcosm of other manufacturing opportunities and capabilities, which is really, really thrilling. Not to mention pushing energy policy in a different way because you've got such a success story that can't continue to thrive on uh, five to six hours of brownouts a day. And so it's very, very exciting to see. Now, their next challenge is really a talent challenge. 
looking at, Afri at uh, China, A to Z said, we want to try the dormitory thing too. And so they've been going into villages as far away as 700 kilometers and getting young men and women between 17 and 23 with an average of sixth or seventh grade education level to come and work in the factory. Now, I have worked a lot of spent a lot of time working in some of Kenya's really um, horrendous slums. And where the, the, the pattern is so often go from the rural areas into the slum, pay 30 to 40 times what the middle class pays for all of your goods and services, and never get out, multi-generational. And here, we're watching people within a month or two skip that whole pattern. And they're going from the rural village with, where there was no cash earned into this dormitory situation where in the first month, because all of their housing and their food is covered, they're, they're saving 50 or $60. Now, the girls um, typically, even in the first month, they send back most of their money to their parents, and the rest of the money they spend on perfume and body cream and makeup, um, which shouldn't really shock us, because we see that all over the world. Um, the boys, which is really uh, shocking on another level, um, typically get paid and they go AWOL. They don't come to work for three or four days and they go drinking and they hang out with women and they're bringing disease back into the dormitories. And so the, the company is really struggling um, from a gender perspective on now what? Now what do we do? Are there ways of bringing in other services, microfinance, health services, to what will soon be? Right now it's 3,000 people and they grow to 4,000 people. Um, very soon. And because it's such a model, we want to think about, well, what's the next phase? What's, how do we show the rest of the continent and even the rest of the country ways that this private sector company can work effectively with other kinds of social institutions for change? Um, but it's really, really exciting to have gone from this place I go every year and seen it from one machine to where it is today. Um, and I just didn't really dream that things would happen that fast and that effectively. Um, to give you a sense of some of the other kinds of things that we do, and certainly if you want to ask questions about any of them, this is a picture of a baby, but um, from LifeSpring. Uh, India, which has one of the highest maternal mortality um, rates in the world, you're 250 times more likely to die in childbirth in India than you are in Sweden, um, has that same conundrum. Government clinics where the, the doctors rarely even show up, and uh, high cost, high quality private sector services. So LifeSpring, which is a joint venture, we own 50% of this company, is looking at a better way at providing maternal health services at one-sixth the cost of the private sector, and scaling it really quickly so that we can get the, the volumes to cover the costs, and is now building a 30-bed hospital every 35 days. And so it's a really interesting experiment. They're up to seven, and I'm told that when I visit it in August, there will be 11. Um, and to, again, watching it grow from one just a year ago to where we are today um, shows us how we can do this. One of the insights they made was, um, particularly on the charity side, when everybody said, but somebody wants to create a hospital for the poor, they feel the need to, to build the whole thing from the bottom up, and the, the typical cost is 10 to $15 million. Well, these guys' capital cost is under 100 grand because they go well, often to charity hospitals that are now dead, or they go to old schools that use existing infrastructure. This is Saiban in Pakistan. Um, there is no mortgage market for the middle class or the lower class in, in Pakistan. And so 
here's a model that tries to um, connect mortgage payments to what people are paying for um, in the slums. And has ju they've just broken the ceiling, and the first few um, commercial mortgages have now been given to people who are living in these very low-income communities. This is another hero of mine, Ed Sklut. Um, good to see you. This is a picture of drip irrigation um, in Pakistan. Drip irrigation is a way of taking um, through a little tiny plastic tube. It was developed in Israel for large farms um, on drought land, drought, drought prone land like deserts. Little plastic tube that would take the water directly to the stalk of the plant. Um, three design principles. One has to be really inexpensive, so inexpensive that the farmers can borrow and repay their original investment within a single harvest. Two, it had to be incrementally and infinitely expandable so that you would buy enough even for an eighth of an acre and then as you earned, you could continue to expand across your fields. And three, that it didn't have to be the highest quality because farmers were making the decisions on one or two um, years, not with a time horizon that lasted much longer than that. And by the time they had gotten through that, they could afford to pay more. Um, we, um, we saw Amitabha Sadangi and IDE sell over 300,000 systems, watching farmers increase their income from $1 to $3 a day, and decided we wanted to try to transfer that technology to Pakistan. And this is a photograph of seven acres of sunflowers growing about seven feet tall that I went to visit um, in the with the first round of farmers there. Kashif Microfinance in Pakistan, the second largest now microfinance bank in the country. Uh, L, uh, D Light, which is selling LED lights um, primarily in the rural areas of India, but now also in Tanzania, and um, piggybacking on a lot of microfinance institutions, which is also exciting to see because, again, conventional wisdom had told us that people wouldn't borrow for, um, for these basic services in the way that we're seeing. I love this ambulance, 1298. Um, it is a, a company in Bombay. It's a for-profit private sector company. It was created by four guys, led by a, a man named Shafi Mathur, um, who really got sick of the fact that uh, Bombay, a city of 18 million people, had no real working ambulances, certainly none that were, were, um, had medical qualifications. And the ones that were um, private sector driven for the wealthy the only way you could get it is if you bribed the guy before um, he would even come to pick you up. And so they decided to create a better mousetrap. This is a company with this, the ethos of service for all. So if you're taken to, an to a hospital, you pay. If you're taken to a free public clinic, it's free. About 20% of the people go to the public clinics. And it proved itself and its sustainability on the private sec uh, as a private uh, model. And in fact, um, if you remember in November the terrible terrorist attacks in Bombay, um, it was extraordinary to see in every piece of CNN footage one of these yellow ambulances um, showing up to the scene. And I think that was a really a critical moment in many ways for them, but they've now won government contracts as well as having a sustainable private model and so um, will soon be the, one of the major um, ambulance providers in four Indian states. And so it's an example where Private innovation can drive public sector change um, that I think is so exciting, not least because um, Shafi Mathur has also really put a stake in the ground and said this will be a corruption-free company. And so it's turning on its head um, what so many people where they see public-private partnerships feel is impossible to do 
doing this without bribes. The only unfortunate thing is that's why they have such a dumb number. Um, when they tried to get a good number, like 111 or 999, um, they wouldn't pay bribes for that either. And so they were <laughs> stuck with 1298. Um, they also are innovating with realizing that petroleum costs are so high and you need to somehow keep a generator going for your equipment on the inside that now they're experimenting with solar panels on the top of the um, ambulances. This is Ecotact. It's a private-public partnership for toilets, public toilets in Kenya. These are, this is an example of the, one of the urban ones. There are now 11. They're serving about um, between eight and 9,000 people a day, and we are, believe that that's going to grow dramatically over the next few years. Um, costs about five shillings to use. And these, this is a picture of farmers producing artemisinin. Um, Artemisia is a plant that is, provides the basis for artemisinin, which converted into coartem, which is the best, well, artemisinin, um, which is the best known treatment we have for malaria. And it's another example like the Bednet company, where you've got the global fund that is looking to produce this, um, and rather than only producing it in Asia, looking at finding ways to produce, um, to, to support local entrepreneurship in Africa. Um, this case in Kenya, and the company now works with about 3,500 farmers who produce the artemisinin, and they go all the way through the supply chain and are now producing about 60 million tablets um, a year um, in collaboration with, uh, with Novartis, who um, produces what's called Coartem. So that's a snapshot of some of the 42 investments that we've made around the world, and happy to talk about other ones as well. Uh, when when we do this work, as should be obvious from all the, this constant um, innovation and learning and failing, um, it, it always strikes me that sometimes the things that we learn um, are the most fundamentals. And um, ironically, a question that I struggle with today, and I think the world needs to struggle with even more, is what is poverty? What does it mean? What are we talking about when we are talking about getting uh, finding a world where everyone has access to dignity. Um, and often, I'll give talks and people will say, well, does Acumen Fund work with the poorest of the poor? And I really don't understand what they're talking about. Because in my experience, I mean, I certainly can tell you what the poorest of the poor look like in a refugee camp. Um, but if we're looking at a, 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 a vibrant, mixed society, a, um, like in a slum in Kenya, like this place, um, you get all kinds of mixed, in all kinds of income levels that, that, that that live there. And so figuring out who your target population is gets really, really complex. And so often, and I think that it's one of the um, perils in microfinance, which is why we need to think about ways of making that better and stronger all the time, is that we so often see people um, repaying their loans and maybe earning, moving from a dollar to a dollar twenty or even a dollar eighty. But they're not necessarily moving themselves fully and fundamentally out of poverty. And so we need to keep pushing and finding those innovations that bring them to the next level. And I really do believe that getting basic services in ways that they can afford are key to that. Figuring out health insurance is key to that. Because even if you're making 2 or 3 or 4 or $6 a day, and you have a fundamental uh, calamitous health problem, it could set you back for years and years and years. And so Acumen Fund has invested a quarter million dollars in a housing, a for-profit housing development company, which is located about a, an hour outside of the Nairobi slums um, in a place called Kapute. It's started by a nonprofit community development organization named Jami Bora that, work, that 
now has about 250,000 members. And um, when we look at our target group and we think, well, are the poorest of the poor getting access to housing? And the answer is probably no, that you have to make about 4 or $5 a day um, to have saved up the $400 down payment that is needed for this $4,000 house. And so I said, well, I want to go back and see who are some of these borrowers and what are their stories so that we, we can be more nuanced in understanding the very fabric. And so this is a story about going back one day, just last January, um, to Mathari Valley. And this is a picture of um, Mathari, which is about a, slum, uh, a mile long and two-tenths of a mile wide on which 750,000 people are crammed into those, um, into those tin and mud shacks. Mud floors, um, almost always, with a little bit of linoleum you might find. Uh, I worked here 25 years ago, and I don't remember it being that bad. And I certainly know it wasn't this dangerous, because this time I had to go in with two armed guards and an ex-thug, who was really the security, because he had so much respect in the community. And you could feel the tension in the air the night before six boys had been killed by the police. Um, gangs, prostitution, a lot of bad stuff. Um, had to get it, throw my shoes away at the end of the day, just walking through the human sewage. It was impossible not to step in it. And yet, it was also impossible not to see the vitality, the people that were working everywhere, smiles on the kids, getting bathed, um, just the life around. And also to see people like this woman, Mary, she's lived in that shack for 32 years, renting it um, with her seven children. And yet, by selling water from her kiosk and a few loaves of bread, she has put all seven of her children through school. Um, and it has just an indomitable spirit. Um, also, important to remember that even these little, presumably lost and forgotten pockets of the world are connected to the mainstream. And I happened to be there the day after Obama got elected as president. And on every corner in Mathari, you saw a boy with a newspaper. Um, and when they would see me, um, they would say, Obama, he's my brother. And uh, <laughs> I would say, well, he's my brother too, and that makes me your sister. And um, they would laugh and high five me. And it truly was this moment of um, real interconnection and certainly one of possibility. Uh, and it was here that I met this woman, Jane. And the, the, from the moment you meet Jane, you, you can't help but be struck by her beauty and her grace. Um, she's just got this very beautiful, grounded spirit. And so I asked her what her story was. How'd she end up in getting this money for Capote? What were her dreams? And she said, well, when I was a little girl, I had two dreams. I wanted to be a doctor, and I wanted to marry a really good man. Because when I was um, a child, my father left before I got to know him. And as a result, my mother couldn't afford to send me to school. And so I never got to be a doctor. So I decided to focus on the man. And I got married when I was 18. And I had two babies by the time I was 20. And that was the year that my husband left me. And my mother died. And I was left with these two babies. And I had no skills. And I lived in Mathari Valley. And so I became a prostitute. And then her story becomes one we hear a lot, um, trying to make ends meet feeling great shame for what she did. And she did it for about seven years until she heard about this organization, Jami Bora. And the deal was, Jami Bora would lend anybody, beggars, thieves, the whole deal, $50 as long as they found a way to match it. 
And it took her a year to raise her $50, and then she borrowed her first microloan. And she bought a sewing machine. Um, classic story. We've heard it many times. And she started sewing. But Jane understands this idea of dignity. And so she decided to upscale, re realizing that women um, of any class across the economic spectrum want their little girls at one point in their lives to feel like princesses. And so she would go into the, probably the same secondhand clothing market where my blue sweater was in 1986. And she buys old ball gowns. And I've actually seen Armani in this place. So I mean, like you can buy really nice ball gowns. And she repurposes them. She puts lace and feathers and all these kind of concoctions to make them um, well, as frilly and frothy as a little girl could ever dream of. And she sells them to women for about $6 each for First Holy Communion and Sweet Sixteen dresses. And women love to buy them. She sells five or six a week. So I said to her, I want to see you sell them, because she's a hawker. She walks through the streets. And um, before you know it, all, a crowd of women had gathered around. And she sells jewelry as well. And I was looking at her from afar, and I was thinking, is she poor, or is she not poor anymore? Um, because Jane's three children leave every morning, and she lives in fear that they're not going to come back, or they're going to join a gang, which is their li the likely outcome. And so this idea that we need to find a way to move her out um, with her own abilities by just facilitating it becomes really important. And so I said to her, um, so you're moving in a few weeks. And this was January, so she's now moved. Uh, are you afraid? And she said, well, what would I possibly be afraid of that I haven't confronted? And I said, well, then tell me where your dreams are today. And she said, well, you know, when I was a little girl, I dreamed, um, she said that in some ways my dreams um, are different, but in some other ways they all came true. Because when I was a little girl, I dreamed that I would um, marry a good man. But what I really wanted was a loving family. And I love my three children fiercely, and they love me back. And she said, and I thought I would dream that I wanted to be a doctor, but what I really wanted to do was heal and serve. And you know, in 2001, I got HIV, and I got on antiretrovirals, and I have been so healthy for the past seven or eight years that I feel incredibly blessed. And so twice a week, I volunteer, and I work with patients that have recently discovered they have HIV. And I tell them, you are not dead. You are still alive. And because you're still alive, it is your duty to serve. And if you can't serve for you, well, then do it for me. And she said, so, you know, maybe I'm not a doctor because doctors give out pills. But maybe in some ways I'm better because me, I give out hope. And um, I think, and this is where she's just moved, um, <coughs> along with, by the end of the year, 2,000 families, uh, so about 12,000 people, where we hope to see a whole microeconomy grow. And I think it really is time for all of us to think about Jane and take a cue from her because in this moment of such economic crisis, and I know so many of you are certainly feeling it as you're looking for jobs, the, the, the natural inclination for so many of us is to pull back with fear and to look away. And yet this is precisely the moment when we see broken systems to reinvent and to reimagine and to innovate and to experiment with what I truly do believe is this new, not so new, 
but this third way, um, which works between the market, uses as a, at a as a listening device, recognizes and respects its um, powers of efficiencies, and also understands its limitation, and then combines that with the kind of philanthropic and charitable assistance that allows true patient capital to function by bringing the kind of talent, capital, and knowledge together to create the kind of change we need. Um, I truly dream this world where every human being has access to basic goods and services. I, I really believe that that's where dignity starts, because that's where choice starts. And when I think about the MBAs of this generation, who are so different from the MBAs of my generation, it is what most gives me hope about the kind of systems and the kind of opportunities that we will be able, as a world, to see. Because we are truly more connected than we have ever been. And we truly need you more than we have ever needed you. So good luck to all of you. Um, I will be cheering you on and um, would happy to take any questions that you might have. So thank you. Talk. I was just wondering that you've had such successful ventures over the years. Is there a database where all the steps that have been taken have been recorded so that people can learn from those practices and they don't have to reinvent their wheel every time someone's trying to do something? Um, the, we're starting to codify our processes. I'm not sure there is a manual in terms of the steps because the processes tend to be so messy with each entrepreneur and we're the investors. But we're codifying our processes around it. And the idea of Pulse as a metrics platform is also around codifying the outcomes. I think we're starting to see uh, patterns, uh, particularly from, the, from where things have failed, where we can um, start to influence and participate in this larger conversation about what works and what doesn't along the entrepreneurial learning curve. But it's pretty early days. And it's something that I really want to spend more and more of my time on. Because what, what you learn about organizations when you found them is that, the, the, that organizations really are organic. I mean, there's a reason that the, that, that the, the lexicon is, so, is, is you know, rooted. And when the organization is ready for this next stage, it kind of presents itself. And until today, now that we have 40 and we've got five that have more than a quarter million customers that are showing real sustainability, um, now we have that da database to start asking those questions and look across. Before, it was more an interesting story and anecdote. And so I think that that's going to be the challenge for Acumen over the next three to five years, is to get better and smarter at that. Hello. Um, so a lot of us sitting in the audience here uh, have an idea. And uh, all of us, certainly I, have a starting problem too. Um, so I have a question. How did you get, you know, when you go back to when you started the fund, how did you get from your idea to actually putting something down and taking that first step? And like specifically, what did you do? Um, in some ways, there's two, two I'm going to answer two questions, even though you might not have answered the first, asked the first one. Um, 
Because there's how do you get started, and then there's how did you start a social venture. Because Acumen Fund is a little different. By the time I started Acumen Fund, first I was almost 40 years old. And so I had already, I was at the Rockefeller Foundation, and I had built a network of individuals over 20 years who could provide me with a lot of financial support to get started. And so in some ways, Acumen Fund isn't as, as fair a, an example because um, I was at such a different place in my own. Bill Drayton talks about the 20-year apprenticeship. I had gone through that apprenticeship. Um, in, in blocks, it's the same, entrepreneurial. Um, I had an idea. I got smart people together to tell me how um, stupid it was. They made, helped me make it better. I went and found funding. Um, I think the, the, the critical insights from Acumen Fund were, that I think I did right, um, was one, to build a, a team around me very early on. And while they weren't paid uh, team members, uh, those individuals uh, are still on my board. They are um, incredibly loyal. They hold that Acumen Fund with me, and I consider them co-founders in many ways. Um, and so it wasn't just me out there. There were others. The second was I um, thought it was really important to get 20 founding partners. Uh, and for me, it was as important, again, I mean, it might be because I'm one of seven children and I need to like always be in a group, but that it was important for me to have thought leaders who, because the idea was so, um, uh, in some ways, controversial, that to get thought leaders together that would then maybe bring on um, others over time. And so where, what I didn't have any idea of was how much $100,000 was to ask people, which was a really great thing. So I asked 20 people to give $100,000 for this completely unproven idea that most of them didn't understand. Um, and I didn't really learn that they didn't understand it for about three years when they were like, yeah, we would have these meetings with you and you would tell us what you were going to do. And I'd walk out and I'd be like, she feels really smart, but I have no idea what she said. And they would still write these checks. And when I asked them three years later, why would you write a check for $100,000 for an idea you did not understand or believe in? And they said, because it was so clear that you were going to do everything in your power to make it happen. And so this combination of being really audacious, building a community, asking for more than you could possibly ask for, and letting them know. And, and they would ask questions like, how do I know you're going to be here in five years? And I'd be like, I'm going to be here in 50 years. You know, that, that being, believing in it that much, people can see it. So one, build a community. Be, two, be audacious. Three, let people tear your idea apart but stand by the core of it. Um, I think are probably the first, the, the three most important. But where it's probably more relevant to some of you is that when I was 25 and I was a banker and I decided I was going to change the world, I just did it. I just decided that it was really scary and I was going to leave banking and I had all the student debt, but um, I needed to do it. And so I moved to Africa and I was a complete and abject failure for about seven months. And, and as many times as a person could possibly fail in such a short amount of time, I did it. Um, but then I met these women from Rwanda, and I had never really even heard of Rwanda, um, came to me and said, we want to start a bank for women. And it felt like such a great opportunity for me. And I felt like such a failure 
from all the times I had fallen down, that I just went. And even though my dream was Brazil, and even though my dream was um, very different, this was the opportunity that came to me. And um, it changed my life fundamentally. And I went back you know, last year to the 22nd anniversary of this organization. Um, so I would say that, that this, there is so much opportunity out there in the world, and it's the, it's the brave souls who just jump in that end up making the, the kind of change that we need to see, but not without lots of mistakes. And this is the moment in your life to make lots of mistakes. Yeah. I admire your, your courage and sustainability and audacity to try what you've done. Uh, two years ago, I met a guy by the name of Muhammad Yunus uh, of the Grameen Bank in, in, um, in Oslo, Norway. And until I met him, I thought what you would try to do was crazy. But since then, I've seen that it can be done. I have an MBA many generations before, not many, a couple generations before you. Let's be clear. Uh, <laughs> but here's the point. Uh, with the gentleman behind me here in Durham, uh, we are going to be doing the same thing that you have done, and we'd like to learn from you. But one of the things I have learned in working with a lady by the name of Majora Carter of South Bronx, and going to a conference here last September, that my question to you, have you done anything in the United States like what you're doing here? Because we have discovered that next to you, within a thousand yards, there is a community of blacks and browns who are as desperate as the people in Kenya or Pakistan or any place else. And you, as students here, have a tremendous opportunity to work with these people, to give them what they're looking for more than anything else is dignity. And I'd like your advice of how we should go about doing this here. I'm going to be responsible for overseas working with Norway, okay, who has a lot of money. I don't know how to do it, but I'd like to start right here. Well, good for you in that there's two, two things that what you make me think of. One is when I was at Chase, actually, I was in Brazil when I um, decided that it was the middle of another banking crisis, and interest rates were at 21%, if you can imagine. And um, I, we were writing off hundreds of millions of dollars of commercial bank debt. And at the same time, I was seeing low and middle class people from the favelas having no access to bank capital at all, not even having the courage to walk through the bank doors. And so I went to my boss, and I told him that I thought maybe Chase should start a lending program for the low and middle classes of Brazil and Latin America, um, and that it would be so great and so so great, such great marketing during the debt crisis. It also would probably be the best way to get our money back, and it was probably a really good thing for the countries. And he literally gave me a book called *The Innocent Anthropologist*, um, and that was kind of the moment of truth for me, where I thought, okay, maybe there's something else. And I, <laughs> I didn't ever really want to be a banker anyway, but um, I. Uh, um, did a lot of research, which was very different from it is today. There was some, Ed probably remembers this, there was some like Fifth Avenue Center for Philanthropy or something, and you would go and you'd go into the little database, and, and I discovered Muhammad Yunus um, in 1985. 
And when I would tell people that I was going to quit banking and I was going to do microfinance, it was so fringe and it was so out there that people thought I had really lost my mind. Um, and I felt a little bit of shame as well because it didn't feel as sexy or smart or as um, clear as telling people I was a banker on Wall Street. And they, I, they you know, kind of imagined me from, going to, from being this really smart, uh, edge, edgy person to being you know, flowy skirts with the you know, bracelets, which I did not disappoint. Um, I went there with a the whole uniform. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was seen as so fringe. And what's so interesting for me 20 years later is to see that, well, not only does Chase have an enormous microfinance program for low-income people all around the world, including in the United States, but that in some ways what we're doing now with this kind of more mezzanine financing for basic services isn't that different from where microfinance was 20 years ago, which is why I feel so much more confident that this is going to be a lot more mainstream in 20 years from now. But actually, with the interconnected world that we're in, I'm hoping it gets there in, in 10 years. Um, we're asked all the time, why does an acumen fund work in the United States? And I think there may be a moment in, the next, in this next phase of our own evolution when we do. Um, an easy answer is funding. Um, and a second is to, as we're re redefining and refining what we mean by poverty, it, I think there's real, opportun real opportunity to fit it into that as well. It was, when we started, um, as Ed can also talk about, less than 2% of all philanthropic giving was going internationally. It was a very different world. And so I really wanted to say, we have to think about the rest of the world. And now it's this, how do you help the world think that we are just one world and we've even got to get rid of these ideas of the developing world and the developed world because within every society you see real elites and real poors, real poor people. And we're at a moment in history where the elites are more like each other across international boundaries often than they are with their brothers and sisters in the same country. And that's something we really need to not just think about, but do something about. And finally, to your point, that even if you don't want to do something domestically, when I was Stanford, I worked at Stanford, I worked at, in East Palo Alto doing microenterprise. And I learned so much um, about the community in which I lived, as well as the transferability and some of the non-transferability of lessons between the global and the local. So thank you. Hi. Um, so after seeing some of these successes, is Acumen now considering entering new regions or actually getting stronger in the regions that it's currently in? And if it is new regions, what are key factors that you consider before making that decision? Great. Um, the answer is both. We're looking at strengthening um, where we are already. And we also recognize, particularly when you have Pakistan and, um, and Kenya as two of your three main areas, there's real vulnerability and possibility by expanding. Um, and so we are also looking at potentially at, at new regions. There would be three um, variables that we would consider. The first is, um, is there an entrepreneurial, is there an entrepreneurial uh, pipeline there? Do we see real opportunities for us very quickly to get in the game and find things that would, we could support? And by those, I mean enterprises with a very strong leader, with, uh, with potential for uh, sustainability um, and potential for scale, which in our minds mean 
that we can envision them reaching a million customers. Um, the second is, is there a business community there that is willing to serve as advisors and also to help raise money? Because we don't anymore want to work in areas where we're coming in to help without, again, because of the elites in so many of the countries around the world, where we're not working in partnership with a, a committed community there that wants to see their own country changed. And um, third, which is the easier, is finding an extraordinary person who has the acumen DNA who would actually lead it and run it from the country itself. Um, overriding that, of course, is money. Um, and we wouldn't, again, go into a region without um, between five and $10 million of new money for that area as a way of starting. So that's where we are. So thank you very much, all of you. We have one more official act, which is the presentation of the award to Jacqueline. Um, and before I do that, for those of you I, I haven't met, I'm Greg Dees. I'm a co-founder of the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship uh, here at Fuqua, um, and uh, was here when this award was originally created. And I want to say a little something about the award and then why we think Jacqueline and Acumen are such uh, uh, great and appropriate recipients for the award. Um, you might think of it, uh, and some people probably think of it as a uh, social entrepreneur's award, but it's much more than that. Uh, the people that we have selected for this award over the years are folks who have built the field of social entrepreneurship. So it's not only that they've done their work and done it well, but they've also been concerned to make sure that they have impact outside the boundaries of their organizations. So when we gave the award to Mohammed Yunus, he was our second award winner. It was not just because of what he did at Grameen Bank or with microfinance, but he has been a spokesperson worldwide for social entrepreneurship and now for social business ventures. Um, so he has had impact that goes well beyond Grameen Bank and Bangladesh and, and even microfinance. The same with Wendy Kopp, a great social entrepreneur, created Teach for America. But Teach for America is really a breeding ground for new talent, and in many cases for education entrepreneurs. And a number have emerged from the Teach America Corps to play leading roles in the field of education. And, and we see Wendy as, as feeding that talent pool. And talent is so desperately needed in this area, which is something that Acumen's uh, been aware of. So Jacqueline is a perfect fit for this, and, and it may not seem obvious to you, but a couple of things she said when she described Acumen will explain. So from the beginning, Acumen has not simply been about having a portfolio of social entrepreneurs and social businesses that perform well. It's been about developing our knowledge. From the beginning, Jacqueline has seen Acumen as an experiment. I just deadened the screen, but I think that's okay. Uh, as an experiment from which we can all learn and has made an effort to make sure we all do learn from that experiment. One example, she mentioned this, uh, developing this Pulse database. Um, and the idea of bringing together a consortium of other folks and funders to build that database in a way that they're gonna use it um, goes beyond the boundaries of Acumen. They could have had their own performance measurement metrics internally, but they weren't content to do that. 
One of the other places where Acumen has reached out beyond the boundaries of the organization to help build the field is in the Fellows Program, which is a remarkable program that does two things. It helps develop new talent for this arena. So it brings into this arena folks who have a passion about it, gives them a wealth of experience over the course of a year, uh, great training up front, um, then a rich experience in the field, but and they will go on to do great things. So they're going to they're going to be a feeder of talent to the field. But more than that, each of the fellows has the responsibility to develop a knowledge product out of their work. So it might be a research paper or a case study or a documentary video, but something from which all of us can learn. It's not a handbook of steps for how to start a venture, but there's a tremendous um, base of knowledge that's now being built up by fellows in, in, in the Acumen program. And that's why we're extremely excited and honored, Jacqueline, that you would accept this award. So thank you very much. <laughs>